Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This week's podcast episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed a dollar or more per episode via my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com slash oceanallison. The Ocean and I greatly appreciate your support. For those of you that haven't, visit patreon.com slash oceanallison to watch my video and learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. And now to this week's episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Tom Fitz. Tom is an Emmy Award-winning cameraman above and below the surface, dividing his time between freelancing with the BBC and overseeing his educational nonprofit, Schoolyard Films. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. Hey there, Allison. Thank you. Nice uh, Nice to be here. Yeah, very excited to talk with you today and share your amazing career as an underwater cameraman with my listeners. Listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background on how Tom and I connected and how he's on the podcast today. I'd like to give a shout out to my dad, actually. He's the one that connected Tom and I, believe it or not. My dad builds boats in South Florida and Tom previously owned a boat and Tom hired my dad to do some work on the boat a number of times over the last few years. And so my dad and Tom would always talk a little bit about how I was trying to come into this a similar field as Tom in the ocean filmmaking and education world. And so I, over the years, would always kind of reach out to Tom and share with him some of the films that I was working on and things like that. And Tom would always provide me a lot of really great feedback and support. And so, you know, I wanted to have Tom on the show to share his story with all of you and highlight his work because it's really incredible. So I want to start out by asking you first, Tom, how did you get into film, especially underwater film? It's not every day that you meet someone that is an underwater filmmaker, especially to the caliber that, that you are in your career. So so what got you started in this industry? Sure. Well, it. Um, I guess really I go back to my college days uh, back in the early 80s. While I was in school, I was starting college as a marine biology student, and and I wound up taking a summer job, which turned into quite a long, uh, a much longer job. Uh, I was a volunteer on a language acquisition study with bottlenose dolphins, and so I was working at an oceanarium, and I loved the work. But over time, I realized a couple things. One was that. Uh, maybe I really wasn't suited to be a scientist for my career. Uh, And the other was that I was kind of getting disenchanted with captivity. And so really my start was this. We had a film crew come in one day to shoot a a short story on, on our work. And during our lunch break, I had a chance to sit down with their their cameraman uh, just kind of on the side of the tank. And we chatted and I realized just in a flash that, holy smokes, this is what I'd like to do. And, you know, this is a way to to work with animals in the wild and 
to work with scientists but not be the scientist and to travel the world and and I've been very fortunate really ever since that one conversation when all those light bulbs started going off in my brain things have really kind of worked out just that way and so from that time when you realized that you wanted to be a cameraman in this industry you know you've managed to make an absolutely incredible career for yourself as an underwater cameraman and one of the most remarkable projects that i feel that you've worked on is blue planet you actually won a primetime emmy for the cinematography and videography that you participated in as part of the camera team for blue planet um blue planet was hugely influential on me as a young kid I think I was in middle school when they came out and my dad bought me the whole series of Blue Planet and I took them into my middle school class and shared them with everyone and you know it was it was a definitely a big deal for me and definitely those films were extremely beautiful and inspiring. So I guess my question for you is being such an influential part of Blue Planet winning an Emmy for them what was it like working on Blue Planet and also winning those awards as part of the camera team? Well, <laughs> well, the I mean, the awards are great fun to have, but you know, without a doubt, they really they are team awards. I mean, filmmaking is such a collaborative effort that there's just no way a single camera guy goes out and comes back with something like that uh, without an unbelievable team behind him or him or her. And so, Blue Planet was a great team of people. And it was just, I mean, really, it was an honor to work on it. It was so much fun. I think I did about 200 camera days on it. From my end, I think there were something like 3,200 camera days by the entire team. Anyway, great team of people, and it took me all over the world. It was, I mean, I have hugely fond memories of working on, on that series. Gosh, from, you know, some of the really deep sea stuff and submarines to a lot of great, great dive locations, too. Blue Planet obviously is produced by BBC, and like I said in the intro, you do a lot of freelance work with the BBC as part of their natural history unit. How did you become a part of the BBC's film production crew? I mean, obviously, it's a great spot to be. How did that kind of come about? I mean, without a doubt, it was, it, it takes a while, at least it took me a while to get in, to kind of get my career going. Um, when you think about it, who's going to give you work when you don't have a track record, have sort of experience, you know, behind you and the equipment's expensive and all that stuff. So I'd been at it for a number of years when then really my break with the BBC was a, a scientist who is an old friend of mine. She uh, has been doing a long-term study with uh, spotted and bottlenose dolphins in the Bahamas for, I think she's now over 30 years at it. But in the sort of early to mid-90s, she uh, was approached by the Natural History Unit to have a shoot on her boat covering her work, and she put in a plug for me. I had already worked with her on a few different projects for other clients, Anyway, so she said to those guys, you know, love to work with you, and I, I really recommend this guy. They'd never heard of me, and they gave me, I think, a 10-day shoot, kind of as a trial, really. They said, look, consider this a trial, and if you do well, great. The, the Natural History Unit has tons of work, and we'll keep you busy. 
And if you don't do a great job, well, no hard feelings, but you know, that'll, that'll be that. And, uh, so that was in 1994 and the shoot went well. And then the following year, they gave me a hundred days on her boat in the Bahamas to shoot a full film on her work. It's a gal named Denise Herzing who, who runs the Wild Dolphin Project out of Jupiter, Florida. She's just done such a great study looking at kind of the, the social aspects of, of dolphin behavior. And, and I consider her to be sort of the Jane Goodall of dolphin work. And, and uh, anyway, so she was the one who asked if I could be their cameraman. And then that led to all the other work since then. Wow. Well, thank you to Denise, I guess. Yeah, that's the truth. That's yeah. the truth. And so as a freelance underwater and above water cameraman that's working for BBC and a number of other projects and networks, I noticed on your website, very prominently displayed, it says that you you know own and operate a fully functioning RED camera. Can you explain to listeners maybe what a RED camera is and then also just how important is the equipment that you have and you operate to the opportunities that come to you in, in your line of work? Sure. Well, the equipment is certainly very important. You can do all sorts of great work, um, but if it's not in a format that you know whoever you'd like to be working with and for – can use, then there's, you know, there's not much sense in doing it. And so Red is a newish company. They make very high-end cameras and they're upgradable. For example, when I bought my first Red camera, it was called an Epic and it was a 5K chip, which is basically just sort of has to do with chip size and resolution. And a few years later, of course, for more money, uh, I gave them a check and the camera, and they worked on it for a week, they sent it back, and, th and then the same camera now had a different chip, and it was a 6K camera, and and so, you know, you can upgrade things the way kind of you upgrade the software on your, your computer. It's high quality, and it's, it's what, you know, the latest buzzword, in at least the kind of work that I do, is everybody wants to deliver the film in 4K, and typically what that means is that you kind of want to shoot it in better resolution than 4K, and then at the end of the whole post-production process, they they compress it down to a 4K delivery. And and so for me as a freelancer, it's nice to be able to you know put on my website to anybody who might be thinking uh, of hiring me that this is what I have, and I hope, of course, that they think, oh, well, that's great, you know, great quality equipment. Uh, hopefully, the guy can use it too, and and uh, <laughs> and we'll be good to go. Yeah. <laughs> And so just to give listeners kind of a visualization, once a RED camera is in its housing for using underwater, how large is the whole setup and how much does it weigh? It weighs approximately 50 pounds in air, which seems like a big, huge thing to, to then go for a swim with. <laughs> but really, because you, you always want your shots well, topside and underwater, not just underwater, you always want them to be smooth. And the larger your camera is underwater, uh, you can weight it so that it's neutral. So really, you can push it with one finger. It's not going to float. It's not going to sink. If you leave it 
20 feet below the surface, you can turn around and do something else. You ought to be able to turn around again and have that camera be right where you'd left it. It's hard to swim. Your fins are going and you're wearing all sorts of equipment usually. And, and so it's not always that easy to keep the camera steady. And so the bigger it is, the, the easier that is, I suppose. If you have a little tiny GoPro, uh, a GoPro can give you a spectacular image for certain shots and they're brilliant, you know, little cameras. But if you're going to swim one, it's really hard to swim it steady and not sort of show the audience that, you know, that a diver was holding this and was kicking madly to get up close to whatever animal. And it's a bit more frenetic. So if you have a larger camera like mine, I think you can just be smoother with it. Yeah, definitely been there, done that with the shaky GoPro camera shots. Sure. Um, And so you have worked on so many films. We can't possibly talk about all of them today. They've been broadcast on every major TV channel and network like PBS, BBC, Discovery, Nat Geo, you know, all of them and beyond. So I want to kind of ask you a three-part question series to try to talk about some of the films that you've worked on, but again, can't talk about all of them. So the first question in this three-part question series that I have for you is, what has been one of the most awe-inspiring, incredible, just wow experiences that you've had, you know, thus far in your career while filming underwater? Well, I, um, I know, I guess I know it's been a long career, so there's, there's a lot to choose from. Well, what really jumps to mind for me, I mean, I, I, I do love, you know, basically every film is just fun to work on, but uh, working in the polar areas for me has, has really been quite amazing and, and both, you know, really successful and, and horribly unsuccessful too. It's a challenging place to work, but when it's going in your favor, it's just the most stunning environment. And so I kind of hearken back to my first project up in the in the high Canadian Arctic was for a film by Survival Anglia uh, called Ice Whales. And I had 17 weeks spread out over two summers. So a seven-week summer followed by a 10-week summer filming beluga whales, narwhals, and bowhead whales. And the above water work was just stunning. In a place like that in the summer, the sun never set. So you kind of have magic hour um, when the sun is just low on the horizon, you know, we might have it here for 45 minutes where I live. Um, but up there in the summer, you can have it for a 12 hour period where the sun is just low on the horizon and the light is just, you know, exquisite and the animals are, are amazing. And we were also quite fortunate with what we were seeing. And so I had one day where we flew from camp. We were living with Inuit guides and uh, we had a little tiny airplane and so uh, one of our guides took me two days in a row to a place where the bowhead whales, I mean, it was just so far out in the middle of nowhere from my perspective. And uh, it was really rich with life. And so there were, if I remember right, there were 17 bowhead whales sort of feeding in formation along the flow edge and mouths, you know, these garage door sized uh, mouths wide open, happily feeding away, and we were able to land. And my guide on that, you know, for that, he then stayed with the plane 
Uh, and his job was to stay with the plane because that was, you know, that was the only way we were going to get out of there. And I was left to my own devices. And so I kind of hiked down to the ice edge and had the camera on the tripod working topside. And then I put on my dry suit and, and just all by my sort of lonesome jumped in the water. And there was so much great activity. I mean, the whales were feeding up close. They didn't mind that I was there. The, there were birds, you know, working, working from the surface, diving down. There was a polar bear that came by to, you know, try to get in on the action. And I would work that way until I was freezing. And then I'd get out and take off the dry suit and warm up and continue shooting topside. And it just kind of went back and forth like that. And I, I was a kid in a candy shop with so much to film all by myself. And I can't describe how spectacular it was in terms of just great behavior, which is what I love to film. And uh, we, had a, we had a spectacular day. And the next day we flew back and it was still going on. So we got a second crack at it. And for me, that is a career highlight because bowhead whales in particular are not easy to film. Uh, well, nor are the narwhals and belugas. But anyway, I realized how lucky I was with what was presented to me those two days. And um, gosh, what an unbelievable kind of honor to have been able to luck into being there and have a chance to really work it. And, and I'm really proud of the film. It's, it turned into a lovely film. My second question to kind of go along with that is a bit on the flip side what has been one of the more terrifying or sketchy, scary experiences that you've had while filming underwater? An experience that maybe made you feel very small in a big ocean? Well, I do get a lot of whale, whale and dolphin shoots. I, everybody kind of gets pigeonholed and my niche in a certain sense has been marine mammal uh, stories. So over the years, I've gotten a lot of those, and and um, and whales are incredible to work with. And my experiences are usually they're they're pretty they're okay with having you in the water, and sometimes up pretty close. They can be intimidating though at times. And I've had baby whales kind of who are curious and playful, but they're still really big. And when they start pushing you around, you realize pretty quickly that, you know, you don't have that much say in the matter or control in the water. And so that can be intimidating. But I think without doubt, my most frightening experience ever was working with, with southern right whales in Argentina, in, uh, in Patagonia. And I was working for Tokyo Broadcasting, and they gave my film buddy, Glenn Allen, and myself, they gave us two weeks to do the nice underwater, you know, as best we could do for two weeks. And then their topside crew was going to come in and we did all the, you know, above water kind of hosting shooting to do for their show. And it was our last day of our two weeks on our own. And we'd had phenomenal luck. Uh, we'd had lovely whales. They were always kind of welcoming and, and friendly and, and the footage was coming in, you know, really nicely. And, and so I think we, we kind of got blase or cocky or just downright dumb because we saw three whales and we just didn't take, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but we didn't take 
the time to really assess what they were doing and was this the right you know, situation for us to jump in. We just kind of motored up and jumped in. What happened was Glenn, I was still fiddling with my camera. Glenn got in before me, which is kind of a no-no. You always want to dive together as a team. And so there was rule number one that we broke and he jumped in. And and as soon as he jumped in, two of the three whales that were there left. I mean, they immediately left. And the whale that stayed clearly, uh, we then discovered, was pretty darn angry that this whole situation has just had just changed so fast. And so it swam up to Glenn and it threw its flukes at him underwater and it, and it, the tip of its tail, tail flukes just barely grazed his wetsuit hood. And I mean, if you know whales and how big they are, if you get hit by a whale's tail, you, you know, that could be it. Uh, Glenn was very fortunate, and it was just a, sort of a, a grazing hit as he kind of pulled his head back. And um, finally, I was in the water. The whale was now coming towards me, and I had a lovely shot going uh, with it coming out of sort of the green murk. It was coming up, you know, closer and closer to me, and it's what, you know, you always want. And then finally, it appeared it was still coming so close that. I was afraid I was going to bump it with the camera. And in those days, my camera weighed, I had about a 70-pound camera rig in the water, and it had a plastic sunshade on it that sort of had sharpish edges. And I, I didn't want to hit it with, you know, with the front of the camera with that. Their skin is every bit as sensitive as, as our skin is. So I just sort of aborted the shot and pulled the camera down to my right side. And then there we were swimming parallel you know just three feet apart and the whale pulled its head back almost like a golfer in a backswing and then came and just clobbered me with its head and had I been on the surface it would have certainly thrown me a good long ways uh I was only under about 10 feet but one of the most terrifying things I've ever experienced to have a whale hit me so hard and uh, I got to the surface fast and immediately was flagging down the boat. And then I saw that Glenn was already on the surface and he was already flagging down the boat. And the whale was on the surface and it was turning back towards the two of us. We were swimming together quickly. And I thought, honestly, I thought, you know, it's going to kill us. And the boat came over. They could see that we were waving in a way that we don't usually wave. And the whale got sidetracked by the boat. And it came up out of the water in sort of a half breach. And it crashed down on the boat with its head. And it cracked the hull of the boat. It wasn't a big boat, but still it cracked the hull of this sort of 18-foot fiberglass boat. And I thought, well, it's going to do them in and then come back for us. And and uh, it went underwater, and we waited, and the boat, you know, kept coming towards us, and then we saw the whale leaving. And we got on that boat, and I'm telling you, we were shaking with fear and adrenaline and all the emotion you would imagine in a situation like that. And we got out, and, you know, we calmed down, and we sort of thought through it, and we just realized then that we really had been dumb not to kind of look and see what the whales were doing before jumping in with them. 
in a blasé way, assuming that they would like to have us around because there are plenty of times when those animals, you know, they're doing their own thing and they don't need people coming in and diving with them. And uh, so that was kind of a hard lesson to learn. But uh, if you ask me what, what has been my most frightening time uh, at work in 30 years of this, this, uh, in this career, uh, absolutely that's it. Yeah, I would say I would say uh, getting headbutted by a whale would definitely go under the category of, of terrifying. And yeah, what a <laughs> what an amazing story! And I'm happy that it it ended well. And you were well, able you were able to get back, even though the boat hull was cracked. Yes, the crack was above the waterline, and so we you know we clambered on board as fast as we could, and we got back to port fine, and they were able to patch it up. So. So we did fine. We just, you know, it was a tough way to learn about, you know, how to approach wildlife. And, and, you know, on the other hand, one of the things I love about this work is that with every shoot you do, you're always learning something. There's always ways to improve. If you're dealing with wildlife, there are other ways to figure out how to shoot them or approach them or just learn about, you know, their lives so that we can fit in as smoothly as possible. Because really the, my goal, if I'm shooting a behavioral sequence, is always to be sort of a fly in the wall and, you know, you don't want to affect what's going on in front of the camera. So you're always learning how to, how to do that. Yeah, sometimes in more terrifying circumstances than others. Yeah. And so the the third part to this kind of series and in, in asking about your work over over the years, to you personally, what would you say has been the most impactful or meaningful film that you've gotten to be a part of? Something that really motivated viewers in in a big way. I mean, I'm lucky to work with groups like the BBC because I feel like so many of their films really are, you know, they reach a lot of people. I think they're, they're important films. So there have been lots with them. But in more recent years, um, I would give that one to a film made by a group called the Oceanic Preservation Society, OPS. They made a film just recently uh, called Racing Extinction. And I think if any of your listeners haven't seen that one, I highly recommend, I think you can rent it on iTunes. And if you do a search on the web, you can, you can find, a, find a way to, to view it. It's a film on a tough topic. You know, extinction is a pretty depressing thing in and of itself. But the filmmakers handled it in a really good way, I think. They made a riveting film. But... They left the viewer, I think they leave the viewer with a sense of, do you know what, we can all, you know, on, on individual levels, we can make decisions uh, in our lives that do have an impact on the planet and on, on big things like extinction. And anyway, it's a film I'm really proud to have had just a small part of, but I think it's really worth a watch, highly recommended. And so that one, to me, in recent years, is having a big impact. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm I'm so glad that you brought up Racing Extinction. I actually got to see Racing Extinction when it first was shown to an audience at Blue Ocean Film Festival in 2015. And yeah, just like you said, as a viewer, I was inspired and motivated to really make change and feel hopeful on a topic that is, you know, not the most 
fun mm-hmm. topic to think about or the most hopeful topic you can you can talk about you know the sixth extinction that we're causing on our, our planet but yeah so great that you were a part of racing extinction and, and i agree extremely impactful so yeah for listeners definitely check out racing extinction if you haven't check out tom's camera work and many others that were a part of that team as well <laughs> and so i want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit from talking about your career as a freelance cameraman to talking about your nonprofit schoolyard films and schoolyard films is it basically provides free educational films and lesson plans for k-12 through students and it's all centered around ocean topics so you know with all that you have going on all of these different freelance projects that you're working on what motivated you to start this nonprofit? well my wife crane and i have have three kids and I've always gone into their schools and chatted, you know, in science class about some of the work that I've done. And and I've shown, you know, clips of films and behind the scenes slides and things. And it's always been just hugely fun for me. But I think, too, that the kids get a kick out of it, having sort of a, a personal presentation like that. And so it it really came out of that. I I realized that our school budgets are all getting getting cut, and I realized that maybe there was a way that I could kind of give something to schools throughout the country if we formalized, I guess, these little presentations that I was doing, and then that way reach a whole lot more people. So. So we started this nonprofit, Schoolyard Films, and really what we do is I go out and, you know, with our board, we have a team, we raise money to make a film, and so then we go off and we produce the film. They tend to be about 15 minutes in length, and and that's from chatting with a lot of teachers trying to figure out what would best suit their needs. And so a 15-minute film gives a teacher time in a single class period to introduce the film and then show the film and then still have time to have, you know, kind of a, a, a meaningful discussion after, after viewing the film. Uh, and so we, we do that and we make up study guides, which help three sets of teachers, you know, for elementary school teachers, for middle school teachers and for high school teachers, it helps them present the concepts in the film. And We've teamed up with Apple and with PBS so we can distribute for free, which means that all of what we do is freely available for no purchase at all to teachers throughout the country. We're just trying to make films with a good, solid environmental message that we can, you know, get into as many classrooms as possible. And I have to say, I do love the television work that I've always been doing, and we've reached a lot of people, but it's unbelievably satisfying to be building a schoolyard into something that I, I hope one day will be a household name amongst teachers. Um, they're fun films to make, but they're also stories that I think are really important for kids to to see and to learn about. And, and so... I uh, I really love what we're doing uh, with Schoolyard. Yeah, and so what are some of the topics that are covered by Schoolyard Films? Okay, well, we did uh, some of the films I'm I'm able to to sort of tag team on BBC projects, and so if I go off and shoot for them for two three weeks on something, 
then with their permission, I can stay for an extra week. And, and I've already got sort of built in, you know, we've worked out the, I've met the scientists and the housing and where you're going to stay. And, but if you need boat rental, you know, all those sort of details, for example, along those lines, we have a film on humpback whale research that I shot in Hawaii. We uh, have films, gosh, one is sort of a water rights, water management film in Montana. We've done river turtles here in Florida and horseshoe crabs in the Carolinas. And at present, I'm just finishing shooting. We'll start the editing process uh, in early December. We're making a film I'm so excited about. I mean, I love them all, but I'm really (laughs) tickled by this one. And it's on the Floridan aquifer system. There's a massively huge freshwater, you know, an aquifer system that's under so much of this state of Florida that most people just know nothing about. So I took a week-long course to get, it's very technical diving to be in in the system, that doing the cave diving. And I took a week-long course, and then we had a five-day underwater shoot, which was just amazing. Uh, and now we're sort of working on the things that impact the aquifer system because it may look like clean, clear water in this pristine environment, but there are a lot of pressures that we people are putting on the whole system. And so there are issues to learn about and to educate people on and so that we can all learn how to manage these things as best we can. It's best for the planet and best for us. And all the wildlife that we share, share this planet with. And so anyway, that's our latest film that we're, we're working on right now. If there's any teachers listening or just listeners in general that want to watch those films that you, you just touched on, how can people access Schoolyard Films online? I'm glad you asked that. Thank you. It's, uh, it's really easy. If you simply go to, on your browser, type in schoolyardfilms.org. So all one word, Schoolyard Films, with an S on it, dot O-R-G. That will take you to our website, and you can, on the second page, it's called on the Films and Study Guide page, you can see a list and, you know, a description of all the films that we've made. I think we have 12 out now. We just last week released one on Coral Reef Restoration. Anyway, any teacher, anybody really can look at that list and if you see something that piques your interest then there are two tabs under each film and one you can go to itunes to either stream or download it all for free or the other is you can go to pbs pbs learning media which is a site for teachers and you can download or stream from from there too so so that's the way to find out what we're doing and to contact us and, you know, if you have any questions for all of it, go to schoolyardfilms.org. And so another thing that I want to touch on before we kind of wrap up the podcast episode today is uh, many of you listeners might have seen a video that BBC shared just recently on all over social media, and it featured a sloth swimming through crystal clear blue water and trying to find a mate and it was absolutely incredible i was blown away by the video when i watched it and then i came to find out soon after that tom is actually the cameraman behind this amazing footage and um, it's all part of planet earth 2 which is bbc's kind of latest and greatest project that they're putting out in the world so 
Tom, just really briefly, can you tell us kind of what it feels like to be the cameraman behind a video that, you know, obviously it's part of the BBC. That's a big enough deal in itself. But that really goes viral. I mean, so many people were sharing it and resharing it and commenting all over social media. What's that like for you? Well, I mean, I have to say it really tickled me to see the numbers that this little promo has been getting. Last week, I looked at it, and gosh, it was at, I think, a million and a half viewers, and that was astounding. And then the next day, it was up to three, and it just kept going kind of exponentially. And the last time I checked, it was over 10 million viewers, and that's really pretty darn uh, neat to, to think that that number of people can just jump on the web and see what you know I was seeing through the viewfinder of my camera. It's it's pretty powerful, and I I have to say, Planet Earth Two will be a really great series, and it's airing now in the UK. We won't get it here in the U, in the US until the end of January, but on on January twenty eighth, it'll start here on BBC America. And those sloths make their appearance in the first episode, which is on islands. And if any of you can see it, I highly recommend it. And I have to say, I'm excited, too, because I know what I did, but I haven't seen the full film. So I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to sit down and, and have a watch, too. That's awesome. Yeah, well, definitely, I'll be checking that out in January when it comes to the U.S. And for listeners that are also in the U.S., I hope that you check it out as well. And, and if you're in the U.K. or beyond, I'm sure you can find online, you know, when Planet Earth 2 and, and the sloth that Tom filmed will be coming your way. So for listeners, if you've been inspired by what Tom is doing with his career as an underwater cameraman and all of what he said today, including the talk about his nonprofit schoolyard films, I will be linking to Tom's personal website. It's fitzpro.tv. That's F-I-T-Z-P-R-O.tv. And then I'll also link to schoolyardfilms.org, their website and their social media channels. They're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So you guys can connect with Tom and Schoolyard Films there if you are interested. So Tom, I want to thank you so much for all the incredible work that you do for the ocean in filming the animals that live all over our world's ocean and sharing those experiences with us and everyone around the world. And also for being on the show today i really enjoyed talking with you well thank you allison i really appreciate what you do uh with this podcast and all of your other projects and thanks for thanks for having me on it's been a real pleasure you just heard tom fitz emmy award-winning cameraman above and below the surface dividing his time between freelancing with the bbc and overseeing his educational nonprofit schoolyard films To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.